0: Like most others who preach and teach, as you're going through any book of the Bible, you're accessing as many um, resources as you can to help you understand the text. As I started looking at different commentaries on the book of Proverbs, most of them said, don't do that. Uh, in other words, don't try to preach through Proverbs. It's not a good book to try and preach through. Just kind of leave it alone. Uh, it's like a uh, a book of um, of punchlines, and you're you're getting each verse as kind of a punchline. And and if you have to explain the punchline, then nobody got the joke, right? And so it uh, it's just a difficult book to preach through. For myself, I have just found it incredibly uh, practical. And uh, useful for my own soul, and I hope it has been uh, useful for many of you in the process. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a book I've spent a lot of time in over the years and, and want to continue to do so. So, as we come to this little passage today, uh, again, just getting our feet wet in the text. Ben read for us starting at verse 23, and you'll note that it is, serves as a heading for the balance of this chapter. Verse 23 says, these also are sayings of the wise. And then if you drop down to 25 and verse 1, it says, these also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. So you've got this little section here that stands on its own. And uh, that's what I want to address this morning, but specifically just a couple of verses out of this portion, really 30 through 34 so when we come to the text uh, let me just go back over those few verses again i passed by the field of a sluggard Uh, if you don't know that word just means somebody who's lazy Uh, we would use the word indolent it's another good word for that Um, and maybe you wouldn't use the word indolent i don't don't know It's it's not one you see very often maybe in a crossword puzzle Okay, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. Not only is he lazy, in his laziness he's not thinking very clearly. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. It's a simple domestic scene. Uh, Either he happened upon it, or as the title of this would imply, he got this seen to consider from some other wise men and the basics of the story the text are not hard to grasp at all he passed by the field which it becomes obvious was owned by a sluggard a lazy fool how do we know that well he gives you the indications here number one it's overgrown with thorns Number two, the ground is covered with nettles. There's not much difference between thorns and nettles, except nettles is a whole variety of weeds that have also thorny uh, issues with them. The stone wall was broken down. I think this picture captures it pretty well. And then he asks and answers the question, or at least the questions asked behind the scenes, how did it get this way? And the simple answer is neglect. Neglect. For whatever reason, there was neglect involved, and he's going to say that the neglect had to do with laziness. Now, as with all the Proverbs, as we've seen all the way through this study, one can simply look at this and come away with a wonderful moral and practical lesson about needing to pay attention to, to things, whatever it is you have, and a warning against laziness and its disastrous results. Uh, leave anything to itself, and eventually it's going to degrade and disintegrate. Um, if you want proof of that, you can check my refrigerator. Um, we we just had our house painted this last week, and the painter reminded us that a good professional paint job lasts only between eight to ten years. I was kind of hoping for a permanent solution there, um, but exposure takes its toll. Even on a, this is not my house, by the way. Um, <laughs> exposure even to something that was once majestic and made out of the most durable materials like stone, if it's left to itself, if it's not tended to over time, it will eventually, like the paint on my house, fade and dry and crack and peel, and it's going to need to be redone. No matter how durable anything is, this is the tendency in our physical universe, and I won't... I know we have several scientists here, so I won't say that this is the law of entropy because everybody says that, but in fact, that's really not the law of entropy, and, and to, to say it that way would, would be a misleading thing. So we'll, we'll leave that for the scientific minds that want to deal with it later. Second law of thermodynamics, having to do with things in a closed system. I won't go there. I'm just going to say things tend to get, get out of hand. They fall apart over time. Uh, meat spoils. Water stagnates. Milk sours and then curdles wood once it's cut from the tree begins to decay and this happens with flowers and fruits and vegetables and anything else especially things that are organic and the truth is that this happens to us as well gardens or fields like this in the text that we read about here necessarily do exactly the same. But as we've seen in every passage all the way through Proverbs so far, everywhere we've gone, uh, Solomon's emphases are not on the mere practical lessons. If you stop there, you get good advice, but advice that can still leave you lost in your sins, still one unconnected to God. The mere practical lessons aren't his goal. The goal here is to deal with the spiritual state of his son, in the first case, and then by extension, us, as the Spirit has inspired him to give us these things, how they affect us spiritually. So here, the Bible repeats, in this passage, um, examples all over the place of how mankind, and especially the soul of man, is likened to a garden, to God's field. Let me give you just a few of those passages. In Isaiah 5-7, God says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He t- uses this metaphor as a way of understanding one of the, our, one aspect of our relationship to him. Uh, In Isaiah 60, it says, Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, that's the people, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Another passage in Isaiah. Talking about when he calls his people back, he says he he wants to grant those who mourn in Zion and to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Some of you may recognize the words from a song there, from a, a hymn. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called, what? Oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And then Jesus himself continues to use this metaphor as a way of relating to us. In in Matthew chapter 13, he had been telling parables and it says he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds and the field. It was a particular parable that he used and he used this explanation. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So he's using these mental pictures to help you get a grasp of some of how God interacts with with all of us. Now that said, and, and given that picture, and the picture that we've just been given in Proverbs Chapter 24, I'm going to ask you a question. And that is, what is the most precious thing that you possess? Here's the question. Now, if you've seen the movie or read the books, this will ring a bell with you. If you haven't seen the movie or read the books, take it for, for granted. This actually means something. In, in the, the trilogy by Tolkien, uh, Gollum here was mesmerized by this ring that held power at least as much as he understood it, and he kept referring it to it as his precious. Actually, he would say, my precious. Uh, but um, that's, that, you, my career as, as one who does voices is over right there. well um, what's the most precious thing that you possess? Think about that for just one second. I want to say that Jesus spoke to that very pointedly, very exactly. He did so in a number of places, but uh, let me just cite one. It's in Matthew chapter 16. For what will it profit a man? And of course, we all know he isn't being sexist here. The word there is is human being. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? In that simple phrase, God Jesus puts at juxtaposition the whole of what we can consider valuable in this present world against the value of your own soul. The who you are, whether you're in your body or out of your body. Your personality, your mind, your heart, your desires, your being, your intellect, you. And he says you need to value this. It's more valuable than anything else. It can be balanced off against the whole world, your soul. The wealth of the entire world is not to be traded off against the value of your own soul. John Flavel, one of my favorite of the Puritan authors, said, I fearfully and wonderfully am I made. My soul is of more value than $10,000 worlds, and it's true. In the third volume of his works, which I've just been going through again recently, he gave a number of reasons why the human soul is so valuable, not just from our perspective, but from God's. Let me just give you a couple of those. He notes that it was specially created by God's hand above all other things. In all of creation, as you read the Genesis account, it bears this simple pattern. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. But now when it comes to man, when it comes to mankind, he takes counsel with himself and says, let us make man in our own image. It moves beyond the God said, and it was so. He invests himself, and it says that he breathed into that, that man that he made, and man became a living Soul, a conscious being bearing much of the traits of the living God. Flavel goes on to say the soul is valuable because it mirrors so much of God himself, his rationality, that that we all have a, a reality regarding morality and, and right and wrong. Even though that's been greatly damaged by the fall, it still exists in us and we have the ability to enjoy and perceive certain things that the rest of the, the animals, the rest of creation cannot. Because it can contemplate and experience God's grace here, and has the capacity to enjoy God forever. No other being has that capability. Because of how glorious the heaven is that he's prepared for the souls of redeemed men to live in, that should tell us something of how he values the human soul. Once someone said, I heard in a sermon somewhere, which I steal without attribution, because I have no idea who said it, but nevertheless... They said, Can you imagine it only took God six days to create the universe, but Jesus has been 2,000 years in preparing a house for us? How must he value the souls of men? He purchases souls at the cost of the blood of his son. How valuable must you be, must your soul state before him be that, that he would give his own son to purchase you? The great price with which we were procured. Because both our natures and our actions are immortal. I know everyone thinks it just came out of the movie Gladiator, as, he was, as Maximus was saying, what we do here echoes in eternity. But this is true for every individual. Everything you think and say and do now has some impact on the eternity and where you'll spend it and how you'll spend it. With him or apart from him? In fellowship and in rejoicing in him and the fullness of what he gives or separate from him? Because both worlds, both this one and the next, strive for men's souls as the prize of highest value. And that our conversion to Christ, Flavel writes it this way, is the triumph of heaven and the rage of hell. What he invests in the, the value of the human being that he has created. He wasn't driven to this from the outside. He created us this way. How valuable, because God preserves the preaching of the gospel all over the world to win men, and has for these many, many years. What great promises God, what rewards he promises those who win men's souls to Christ. And how he exercises the most extreme care over the souls of his blood-bought ones. Providing for us in, in, in making sure that we have his word and in the preaching and teaching of the gospel and the assembly of the saints and how he's provided for that. And, and how the heavenly angels are given charge to minister to the souls of the redeemed and consider it an honor to do so. It's amazing. So Flavel closes that section by saying, These things duly weighed bring home the conclusion with demonstrative clearness to every man's understanding that one soul is of more value than the whole world. So I ask you, are you valuing your soul that way? That's the question. It's going to come to us in our understanding of how this text unfolds. Since the souls of human beings are the battleground between heaven and hell, as Flavel put it, we're thrust into this dynamic of an ongoing cosmic warfare that each of us needs to come to grips with. Now, maybe you're not a believer here today. You're not a Christian. You've never been born again by the Spirit of God. You've you've never been transformed by His grace and brought to the saving knowledge of His Son. You need to know that your soul stands in the balance today and I wonder how you value it. After hearing this sermon, as would be true with any other, and being where, where God has been worshipped in the way that he's been worshipped this morning in Jesus Christ, you've heard his word read and you're in the midst of hearing it preached and we'll finish that soon. You've heard prayers offered up and the truth is you're going to leave here in one of two states. You're either going to leave here closer to surrendering your heart and life to him as he commands you to repent of your sin and rebellion against him, or you will leave here harder and more resistant. You will not leave here the same way you came in. You will either be closer to heaven or closer to hell, but you won't be just where you are at this moment. So what are you going to do with your most precious possession today? What about this field that is you? Is the wall broken down? Is it covered with thorns and nettles? Or is it bringing forth fruit that that somehow accords with the God who made you and made you for himself? And by the same token, if you're a believer here today, you need to reckon with the reality of this ongoing battle, both in terms of what we might call, or let me just use a a term, spiritual decomposition. Uh, There's a, it's an old uh joke about beethoven this guy was obsessed with beethoven he loved beethoven's music and he was he he had purchased every copy of it. He had purchased Beethoven memorabilia wherever he could find it. Uh, he started to dress like Beethoven. He made sure that his hair was cut like Beethoven's. He eventually moved to Europe and bought Beethoven's old home. And, and then he found out where Beethoven's grave was. And, and every day he would go out to the grave and he would, he would kind of meditate on how wonderful Beethoven was. And one night his madness got the best of him and he dug up his grave. And as he got down to the casket, he pried open the lid, and he saw light coming out of the casket, and he couldn't believe it. And he opened it all the way, and there was Beethoven. And he goes, leave me alone. I'm decomposing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. But but decomposition of the soul is, is what can happen. You get it. Okay, that's good. I won't try to explain it to you later. As we deal with the reality of indwelling sin and a devil who seeks your ruin and a world that harmonizes with both your sin and the devil, we've got to say that the soul, even of the believer, does not simply remain static. It can become, as this garden was, a place where thorns and nettles have crept in, where the wall is broken down, and where, where things are becoming more and more disordered, And not in their proper condition before the Lord. It's on this same theme that Peter writes in his first letter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? They wage war against your soul. They, They cause you to think in ways that are unhealthy for your eternal state. They lead you to places where where there is nothing but harm to your inner man, to who you are as a human being. And later... Using the example of Abraham's nephew, Lot, from the Old Testament, but driving at the same point, Paul or Peter again says this, For as that righteous man lived among them, talking about when he was living in Sodom, day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He was doing positive harm to himself by the environment in which he thrust himself. Now, we can't leave this world, but there are certain precautions we can take while we're in it. It's a necessary thing. The soul of the redeemed person is meant to be the place of fruitfulness, where God's glory is meant to be cultivated and to grow, to, to bring forth fruit for Him. And so Galatians 5 uses that very language when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And how Paul, in another place, in 1 Corinthians 3, talks about the fact that that he and Apollos, the apostles, were God's fellow workers, but you are God's field, God's building. He uses two metaphors there and mixes them together. And so we must ask ourselves at times, believer and unbeliever here, what is the state of our own soul? Are we caring for it? Or does it more resemble the picture that we looked at in the text? So there's just three things I want to draw out of this. And and bear with me, I think they emerge quite naturally from the text as we've read it. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that the soul can become overgrown with unhealthy things. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever, that's that's already true. If you're a believer, even after you've been saved, you can... Pay little attention to your own spiritual state. And when you do, it can become overgrown with things that are very unhealthy. Things that can't be touched without harm. That's the picture that he's using of a thorn. You can't touch a thorn without it causing damage. Same thing with nettles. Matter of fact, Lang in his commentary notes that there are 22 varieties of these harmful weeds in that part of the Holy Land, and all of them cause harm when the person's hand is in them and messing around with them. Those of you who garden, you know what some of those are like. And the picture is is easy to translate, to bring over into practical uh, places that not dealing with the little sins that pop up in our lives... But once they've taken root, they begin to choke out the fruit that's trying to grow there. Are you paying attention to your own soul? It's the most precious thing you have. And so we can ask about our, our own thought life. What is it that we allow our minds to, to concentrate on, to think about, to muse over? What is it that we allow ourselves to indulge in? Our, our whole thought process, our attitudes. Our responses are are we letting thorns and nettles grow up in there, or are we doing something to keep them out and to and to maintain a healthy heart and mind before the living God if we 're not dealing with those little sins it won 't take long before other things come in. Brian alluded to it this morning as he talked in Sunday school class about uh, Satan putting something into judas 's heart before he went out to betray Jesus, and that it has the imagery of casting seed, just sowing seed there, and and the seeds of these thorns and nettles are everywhere around us. And so I want to give you a thought, but I want to develop even further, and it's just this, that grace does not increase without simultaneous attacks against indwelling sin. Grace in the heart and the life of the believer does not increase without us simultaneously attacking indwelling sin. You can't have the one without the other. He can't have his field as we have it in 30 through 34 and have it healthy and producing what should have been a vineyard here, producing fruit by leaving it alone because the thorns and the nettles will come in naturally and overtake. We can't have the fruit without protecting and maintaining the field. And again, anyone who's ever done any bit of gardening knows this. Let me let me translate that over to a passage that's very familiar with it. And I won't turn there now, but you can perhaps put it in your notes. It's in Galatians five, where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And and if you see these in juxtaposition, maybe it'll help in understanding that a little bit. We cannot grow in love without challenging hatred and resentment and unforgiveness at the same time. They don't happen irrespective of one another. Just won't. You can't, you can't grow more joyful without fighting against unthankfulness and a complaining and murmuring spirit. If you think you can continue to complain about every little thing in life and then think that you're also going to grow as a joyful Christian, I've got news for you. Those are contrary to one another. Can't happen. That's a thorn that's coming and a nettle that's coming into your garden. And you can't have the fruit of the joy without attacking the thorns and the nettles of murmuring and unthankfulness and complaining. We can't grow in peace. If we allow ourselves to indulge in constant riling up over people and issues and events. If you live in constant turmoil, guess what? There will not be peace in your soul. It's that simple. Certainly not the peace of walking with Christ and understanding his sovereign hand over things. We can't grow more patient without attacking impatience. We can't grow in kindness and at the same time indulge in speaking evil about those with whom we disagree or vilifying those we dislike. If we're cursing them under our breath or bad-mouthing them to others, we can't possibly be loving them at the same time. There would be nothing more incongruent than to be taking a swing at my wife and saying I love you at the same time. This is exactly what he's after. These are incongruencies. One chokes out the fruit of the other. You can't have both. We can't grow in uprightness if we're feeding our souls on what is morally compromised and affects our thinking in ways that are contrary to God's standards. We can't grow in faithfulness while also being dishonest and untrustworthy in the small issues of life. We can't grow in gentleness while not refusing to yield to harshness and anger. We can't grow in self-control while being unwilling to control ourselves in anything and indulging our every whim. So, overgrown so that the life of what ought to be growing there, the fruit of God's life within us, is choked out and becomes fruitless. Does that mean that you're not his anymore? Not at all. We'll see that in a moment here as we look at, at Paul's admonitions in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But it does mean we can be fruitless. That's a pretty horrible place to be. So what is the state of your soul, and are you caring for it? Are you paying attention to your own soul? And what its condition is before God? Paul takes great pains to use this very figure that we're talking about here when he speaks about believers in another context. In 1 Corinthians 3, there were divisions in the local church and in that church, some people were saying, well, you know, my favorite guy is Paul. And other people were saying, well, my favorite guy is Apollos. And other people were saying, well, my favorite guy is Peter. It's kind of kind of like um, fantasy football, but with the apostles, right? And, uh, and, and another one saying, well, my, my guy is Jesus. And, you know, he's the best quarterback ever, whatever. And in the process he says this this is building unhealthy division in the church it, it can't possibly help toward unity you can't have unity when you're feeding division <laughs> the two just won't won't happen together so so he asks them a question it's rhetorical what then is apollos what is paul servants through whom you believed were just servants as the lord assigned to each it, here's the process i planted but Wallace uh, Apollos watered but God gave the growth so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth he who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor for we are God's fellow workers you are God's field but he goes on he now shifts the metaphor To a building. First a field, then a building. And so according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Somebody else came along and they're building upon it. And each one who builds, the idea here is building into other people's lives. Each one, um, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If you're going to build a building, you have to have a building that's commensurate with the foundation you build. They have to be together. For no one can lay that foundation which is other than Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or perhaps wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. That's very powerful. For the day will disclose it. The day, meaning the day of the Lord. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. But only as through fire. What are you doing with your soul? What are you building into your soul? Things that will last? Things that have eternal value as your soul does? Or the attitudes, the mindset, the methods, the goals, the ambitions, the values of this world? Which one? Now, if you're a Christian here today, the foundation's already been laid. And that's a great thing. But if you're not a Christian here today, then not even the foundation's been laid. And and when the day of judgment comes, you'll have no recourse at all. So that was our, our first consideration from this passage, is that the soul can become overgrown with unhealthy things. And you may need to think about that in your own Christian life. The second thing from the text is that the wall of the soul can become broken down. That's his second image here in this particular passage in Proverbs. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. The stone wall was a a defense against intruders who spoil and devour, especially little animals. Another place in the Old Testament says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's those little ones that can get in there and root around. We, we live, as sky likes to say, in a house that's teeming with life. Um, squirrels and chipmunks and other little things from the field like to find their nesting place in our home. Um, we've tried our best to poison them. We've tried our best to drown them. I finally bought a pellet gun so I could shoot them. Uh, we've gotten rid of hordes of squirrels who continue to come back with a vengeance. Some of them sporting little gun belts and things. They're vicious creatures that uh, apparently a product of the fall. But the worst of the worst of the worst are the chipmunks. The chipmunks—they're so cute and they're so mean, and they will eat through anything, solid steel. I swear. And they're so tiny and so fast, they're very hard to shoot. I've tried. And every time I get one, Sky will hear me. I'm saying, another one's dead, yes! It's a great day in Zion. But they keep coming back. And I tell you, they are destructive, and that's just it. See, it's those little things that are so harmful to the soul that we think just are kind of furry and cute and I'm not going to pay much attention to. A number of years ago, uh, I wasn't paying attention to uh, other living things in our house. Um, Every once in a while I would hear a squirrel scratching in this attic place we have over our kitchen. (sighs) I laid traps for him. I set poison out for him. I did have a heart traps, would, would trap them in the have a heart trap, I would take them miles away from home, that same squirrel would show up in a day or two with a little travel sticker on his side. You, know. you, you dropped me off in Dansville and all I got was this sticker, uh, that kind of a thing. Um, and we needed to take a trip and, and our luggage was stored in there and so I went in to, to get this luggage out of there and the suitcase was heavy. I thought, it shouldn't be heavy. There's nothing in that suitcase. I haven't stored anything in there. I opened it up, and there must have been 1,500 black walnuts in there. The squirrel had eaten through the side and was storing them in there. and Just to taunt me. It was a personal thing. These little things creep into our souls the same way. Just little things. And they seem harmless in and of themselves And yet, we've put no protection up against them. I saw and I considered, I looked and I received a little instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Closing of that passage is. And the decisions are simple. Pay attention to spiritual things. Do something for the actual growth of my soul today. I've got something else really that's more pleasurable right now. It's a little too hard. It takes too much effort. Why why do I want to work at that? I'll I'll get to it later. And it's all a little bit like we're Scarlet O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. And in the process, other things come in and eclipse. Charles Simeon, the old commentator, writes very wisely, the slothful man does not intend to involve himself in ruin. He only pleads for a a little more indulgence of his indolent habits. But alas, his little slumber insensibly becomes a great deal. His time passes away and his work is left undone. The rest which he takes, instead of refreshing him, enfeebles all his powers and indisposes him for action. So that though he never intends to plunge himself into difficulties, he does it most effectually. I don't know about you, but I've sure experienced that in my own life. All of this is, quite simply, the result of the neglect of the soul not paying attention to its well-being. And so, how are you doing with that? How are you valuing your soul today? Let me give you the third, and we'll close quickly. And it's just this, God's gracious means of restoration. I'm so grateful that he never leaves us in this place. Now, the text itself doesn't advance a cure per se, even though there's the hint of it, though, in the picture itself. Because if the cause of what is seen in this passage is neglect, if that's what's at the root, then surely diligence in spiritual matters has to yield up great help. it has got to be the the way, uh, a certain amount of the path. Now, for the believer, we have the utmost hope because we're aware of Christ Himself that He's praying for us in this regard And, and, and He's using the inward ministrations of the Holy Spirit to chide us and to call us back continually. He never lets His own go and He's always moving in us. So grateful. For that. I don't know how many of you have experienced going through a time of of spiritual dryness or darkness and then realizing over time that the Holy Spirit's just been working so gently and sweetly within to call you back and call you back and call you back till till finally you yield up and and just come back and say some stuff needs to get cleared out. It's choked out the fruit of your presence and and the joy, and the peace, and, and where I should have been living with you. and Oh, he's so good that way. As a matter of fact, it's this very context, in this very context, that one of the most famous passages in Scripture, one of the most quoted, but most often misquoted, misused, uh, of all the passages in Scripture, finds its true application. This is, this is where this passage fits. It's found in Second Chronicles 7, where he just lays out for us so simply that if my people who are called by my name, if you're a Christian here today, you're his, you bear his name, you, you bear the work of his spirit within you, that when we're in this condition, if we will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face, and turn from our wicked ways, find those things where we've, we've let them creep in and do, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. And doesn't he use the wonderful metaphor that we're working with? I will heal their land. Now, this was not written to America. It has nothing to do with our political system. It has everything to do with the soul of the believer. You're his, Christian. But you know you've let things creep in and they've choked out the fruit of his life. And he says, Here's my promise to you. As a matter of fact, there was a the the context behind this entire passage was Solomon's prayer on the day of the dedication of the temple in the Old Testament. And at that moment, he had set up a, a scenario for God. If through our failing and falling into sin, this happens then when we repent, will you restore us? And if we don't listen to you and you have to ratchet it up, and, and we get worse, then when we repent, will you hear us? And if we don't listen to that and, and you ratchet it up, and he ratchets it up seven times... If at last we're finally carried away by our enemies and we're carried off into far lands and and our our country is decimated and, and it doesn't look like there's any hope for us anymore. But still then, if we see our bad condition and cry out to you, will you forgive us? And God's reply is, you bet. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. And that's what he says to you, Christian, today. If this is you, this is his promise. This is how he responds to you. What a wonderful God he is. How precious. How much he loves to show mercy on his own and to restore them when their sinful neglect has wrought all kinds of ugly things. If we just call on him for forgiveness and aid, he will give us supernatural aid in being restored. He loves to do it. But if you don't know Christ here today and you recognize the barren nature of your own soul, that you do not know God, you're not connected to Him, you know that your sin has separated you from Him, you're in this place, and it seems as though there's no hope for you. I don't want you to leave without hope. Now this passage isn't for you, the one I've just read here and cited here in Second Chronicles. It doesn't apply to you. This is addressed to God's people and God's people only. But nevertheless, He is still a Savior of the lost and the hopeless. Oh, he's so good. And as we're told in Acts 17, He commands all men everywhere to repent. To turn from, from where they are. And I can say on His own authority that if you will confess your sin and rebellion against His right to rule you, if you'll, if you'll say, yes, I'm bound in my sin, but I want to turn from it today, He will receive you and He will make you one who is called by His name. He'll make you a new creature give you back your soul and so we read in the gospel of john the true light and he's referring to jesus here which gives light to everyone was coming into the world and he was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him you maybe don't know that today that he made you he created you and yet you don't know him even though he was here and walked among us But he came to his own, speaking of the Jewish people, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He will make you a new creature today. His own child. Bring you into his family. So whatever your case, believer, you who have long neglected your soul after coming to Christ, or unbeliever who's in need of salvation from your sin and judgment, to both of you, we can say today, run to Christ. Run to Christ. He will not refuse you, and you will be made whole. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again so much for your word I thank You that in a passage like this where the metaphors seem so simple and homely that You are still speaking great truth to us. Truth that is absolutely essential for our souls. I pray that my brothers and sisters here today who may have found themselves in a place of spiritual decline will will delight and rejoice in the reality that You have stored up for them today. Forgiveness and readiness to receive them and to correct all that has gone so far astray. To weed out the thorns and the nettles and to enjoy the fruit of Your presence and all of its glory. And I pray for those who are still outside of grace, who have not yet known what it is to have forgiveness and freedom from all guilt and shame to know that every sin is dealt with in the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf and to be transformed and made new creatures, that You will open their hearts, that by Your Spirit You will give them light and life and faith to trust in Christ today. To cause them to be born again. Alive in You. To have the soul that has been lost and wasted. Not just restored, but made new. That they might know You for eternity. Might live in Your love and Your grace. Please, Father, do that work through Your Word today and by the power of Your Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.